morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My guest today is Lee Zacharias, author of the novel Across the Great Lake, published on September 18th. It's a lyrical novel full of indelible imagery and set in what seems to a 21st century North Carolina reader an almost otherworldly time and place in America. I'm interviewing Lee at Bookmarks in front of a live audience. Lee, welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. Thank you so much for having me. Let's talk about you for a minute before we delve into the novel. You were born in Chicago, you were raised in Indiana, now you live in Greensboro. When did you make the transition from being a Midwesterner to being a Southerner, and what was that transition like? It was, in a way, it was gradual, because I went to undergraduate uh, school at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana, which is technically in the Midwest, but Bloomington was a town that was settled upwards from the South, mm. and so it was much more Southern in feel, certainly, than where I grew up, and a lot of people made fun of my accent uh, there because their, their accents were kind of mountain south accents. Uh, and from there, I moved to Richmond, Virginia. From there, I went to uh, Holland's, what, what was then Holland's College, is now Holland's University, out to the University of Arkansas, and then to Greensboro. So I just gradually made that transition. <laughs> Did your experience connect at all, do you think, from this line from the novel, which I love? She says, we, we really were American, or so I thought, until I went away to school and learned that I was not Norwegian or American either, but Midwestern. Yes. <laughs> I, I have to say that because I grew up in the Calumet region of Indiana, um, which was then the steel belt, is now the rust belt. It yeah. was a very industrial uh, environment and quite ugly. I just absolutely hated it. And then when I was in Bloomington, where I was for eight years, because my first husband was a PhD student, and after I got out of uh, school, I worked there for four years as an editor for a research center. And uh, the airport was a, a little shack out in the of the cow pasture, basically. And so I felt as if I were really cut off from the rest of the world living in the Midwest. So I, I couldn't wait to leave the Midwest, was very happy to move to Richmond, Virginia. And then, oddly enough, in my adulthood, having lived in the South virtually all of my adult years, I go back to the Midwest and fall in love with Michigan. Hmm. This novel is set in the Great Lakes area, which is, as I, as I was reading the novel, I, I, it occurred to me that this is unlike any area in the world. I mean, it's not the ocean, and yet it, and yet it feels like the ocean. You're out there on the lake, and you can't see the shore. What, what's your personal connection to the Great Lakes? Well, um, my father was a merchant marine on the Great Lakes during World War II, mm. but he never talked about it. Uh, at least not to me, maybe to my mother he, he did. But I always sensed this great longing for the lake in him. I think he really regretted having to leave 
the lake once he had a family. Uh, so what we would do on his day off would be drive up to the lake, which was about eight miles from my house, mm -hmm. and watch the boats go out. Yeah. Uh, and when I left uh, the Calumet region for a vacation in uh, northwest Michigan, Frankfurt, the, the place where the novel is mostly set except for on the lake, we were staying about two blocks from Lake Michigan, and I thought it was the most beautiful place I'd ever seen in my, in my life. So I think part of my connection is that inherited blood connection from my father and part of this childhood enchantment with the lake. Yeah. Is there a culture of the Great Lakes? Melville calls them those grand freshwater seas of ours. Is oh, there a yes. culture that's different from anywhere else in America? I think, I think there is. I mean, people up there uh, run around, actually everybody in Michigan runs around in tigers paraphernalia. And as soon as you cross the state line, the Upper Peninsula has twin cities. Uh, Menominee is in the Upper uh, Peninsula of uh, Michigan. And then just across the street, there's another city that's in Wisconsin. And as soon as you cross that street, everybody's wearing Green Bay Packers uh, <laughs> paraphernalia. But the tourists are all running around up there sporting maps of the Great Lakes on their T-shirts and uh, ones that say, Lake Michigan, unsalted. Uh, <laughs> Tell us about the premise of the novel, Across the Great Lake. The main event in the novel takes place in the winter of 1936. The narrator, who is looking back on this story when she's 85 years old, so 80 years later she's actually telling the story, uh, the narrator's father is the captain of a railroad car ferry, which were very unlike the ferries that some of you might be a acquainted with from the North Carolina coast. These were huge ships that were designed to carry entire trains across the lake. So they were very industrial type ships. And he takes her with him on a journey because it's about three or four o'clock in the morning. Her mother has had a stillbirth, has an infection that he doesn't realize the seriousness of of which, and uh, she won't get out of bed. She has a, a very severe postpartum depression, and he doesn't know what else to do with the little girl, so he takes her with him on this journey across the lake, which is especially fraught because it's a winter journey. The lake is frozen shore to shore, and so that's the, the basic premise that she goes on this journey and what happens on this journey affects her whole life and that's why she's looking back on it 80 years later. Would you read a short passage so we can get a feel for your prose? Sure. This, this happens on the ship itself. It was in the Manitou Passage that we sighted the Chikora. The watch saw it first in the early afternoon when the light that had been so clear all night and early morning suddenly turned gauzy. It was off to port and we were just done with noon dinner, some of the men lingering over their coffee, when the watch burst into the mess yelling, holy smokes, you gotta see this. And we all rushed out to the deck without bothering to put on our coats and there it was, like an apparition coming out of a mist, 
that wasn't mist, but that strange webby light, like the air was made out of curtains, a big wooden vessel with a single stack and two broken masts that somehow gave her the appearance of an old sailing ship, even though she was clearly a steamer. But the way the spars were broken over, they looked like what was left of a skeleton rigging. Not a sail hoisted, the ship just drifting in a way that seemed impossible in the ice. No one ever saw ships like that, which is why the watch called us, and we raced out just in time to see her before she disappeared inside the filmy air. It's the Chikora, Boson said. Can't be, Walter said. She's too far off course. It's the Chikora, I tell you. Ship comes up from the bottom, can go anywhere she likes. What's she doing in the passage then, Odd asked. If I could go anywhere I wanted, I'd head for the South Seas. Go on home, Rolls Red suggested. There's people waiting. Not anymore. Even the people waiting's all dead. Everyone was talking at once, words streaming from their mouths in white plumes. Rolls snorted. South seas. You want those balmy breezes? Why don't you sign on a salty? Next time, maybe I will. Says who? You're like a bad penny. Captain himself can't get rid of you. Wish I'd had my camera, Holger said. Walter shook his head. I don't like it. Of course you don't, Boson said. Going to be a hell of a blow. It's too cold for a blow, Walter said. Ain't never too cold for a blow. It's an omen, I tell you. Al was standing at the rail, staring off to where the ship disappeared. Though it was below zero, none of us seemed in any hurry to go back inside. How do you know it's the Chikora? Boson glared. What do you think? It's the Griffin? Can't tell a bark from a steamer? Little Fairy thinks he sees LaSalle himself walking around on deck. I didn't see anybody. Something in Al's face steeled when he turned. First trip out, already solved all the mysteries of the deep. It was just a question, Al said, and I was proud of him for talking back, but the bosun must have sensed it because he turned his glare on me. Of course he didn't, Rolls said. Crew's been dead for 40 years. Dick Butler chortled. Guess that's what you call a real skeleton crew. It's what you call a bunch of pussies standing around gawking when they're supposed to be working. Bosun included everyone in his glare now. Any of you ladies hear eight bells? No, sir, Axel and Alv said in unison. Ghost stories, Walter said, like he meant to dismiss them, even though he looked shaken, because he'd seen the ship too, broken masts and listing until it disappeared, as if behind a windrow. But there wasn't any windrow, and despite what Boson said, despite the cold, we were all lingering on deck to see if it would reappear, but it didn't, and finally the men began to disperse back to their posts. Then there was a windrow, but the windrow wasn't any ghost. We were face to face with it, solid ice, and I knew that up in the pilot house my father would be instructing the wheelsman to change course and go around. There was room even in the narrow passage. There had to be, because we couldn't see South Manitou or North Manitou, not the new crib light that marked the North Manitou shoal or the mainland either just the wall of ice and filmy air. And because I was the captain's daughter, I climbed the steps to the bridge to get a better view. And from where I was, the veil seemed to lift. I was standing in full sun, and beyond the mountain of the windrow, it was just plains and plains of ice as far as I could see, plains strewn with so many white boulders, I had never seen anything like it. And I sucked in my breath and said, this, is the world. Yeah.
I love the way in the in the first few sentences of that passage, the reader, at least for me, I, I gradually start to figure out that it's a ghost ship. Um, and then, but for the for the characters in the book, there's an almost an ordinariness to it. I mean, it reminded me of magical realism a little bit that nobody goes, oh my gosh, it's a ghost ship. They just go, oh, there it is. Let's chat about it. We all see it. Here's what it means. And and there's a there's an almost everydayness to it that just takes you into this other world. There's a tragedy that hangs around this novel in many ways. We just saw an example of it. Um, and, and I think one of the things it reminded me of is these forgotten, many of the maritime tragedies of America. I'm, I'm working on a novel right now that has a, a major a maritime, maritime tragedy in, that takes place off in, in New York. But tell us, Tell us about the Eastland, for instance. Remind us about some of these tragedies of the Great Lakes. Oh, there were so many of them. Eastland was a ship that uh, was taking people on a holiday uh, from Chicago, and it sank at the pier. Everybody ran over to one side of the ship, and it unbalanced the ship, so it capsized mm. at the pier, and over a 1,000 people were, were killed. The Manitou Passage, where the passage I uh, just read takes place, is known as a, a graveyard for, for ships. When I started reading about the Great Lakes, I had no idea. I've been in North Carolina long enough that, you know, I think North Carolina has a monopoly on the graveyard <laughs> of the Atlantic uh, and on the ghost legends that are associated with the Outer Banks. But when I started doing research and reading about how really treacherous the Great Lakes are to navigate, and Michigan especially because of its length and because of the very tricky currents around the Straits of Mackinac uh, and the way the um, Canadian air comes down from the north and the air from the south comes up and they, they meet and cause these tremendous storms. The most famous ones are the Gales of November, which many of you have probably heard of from the uh, Gordon Lightfoot song, uh, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, which was on Lake Superior, also a very dangerous uh, lake to, to navigate. But uh, the, the waters of the Great Lakes are extremely dangerous for a couple of reasons, one of which is that the storms can be just as furious as the hurricanes uh, and the storms on the Atlantic Ocean, for example, but the lakes are smaller. Uh, on, on the ocean, any captain would want to run downwind in a storm. But on the lakes, if you're crossing side to side, you've got to beat into the waves for fear of running out of lake and going aground. Uh, the waves in, uh, on the Great Lakes are uh, as sharp, as steep as the waves on the ocean in a storm, but they're closer together. Uh, they are are sharper, and uh, and there are just as many ghost stories associated with the ships and the lighthouses as there are certainly on the outer banks. I think there's something about edges, those places where water and land meet, that really attracts restless spirits. So of course these people take the um, ghost ship as matter of fact because they've heard of it before and because there's a ghost on this ship because there's no such thing essentially I learned reading as a ship that doesn't have a ghost. Mm. 
We've had some great conversations lately about child protagonists, and, and your novel is narrated through the eyes of a woman in her 80s, but she's relating something that happened when she was five. So it feels very much like there's a child protagonist in this novel. Why did you choose that particular point of view, not only the child's point of view, but the sort of retrospective child's point of view? I tried as much as I could, uh, not entirely, but as much as I could, to make the chapters that narrate the actual journey from the point of view of the five-year-old. She mm -hmm. says that some people say the past comes back to them as if it's yesterday, but to her it comes back as if it's today, right now, this very minute. So she's very much reliving this and speaking through the voice of the five-year-old, but because the journey has such a profound impact on her life, uh, the 85-year-old has a lot of chapters in which she's just much more reflective about how things were back then, how things have changed, and what's changed in her. I think one of the interesting things about putting a child in what is clearly not traditionally a child's environment, a you're on this, this working ferry, Everybody on the crew is a man. She, she would like to grow up to be a sailor, but she's been told that she can't because that's only for men. And yet here's this five-year-old little girl in the middle of this. Is the way it changes the dynamic of what that cruise, if you will, would normally look like. So let's talk about a, a scene early in the novel. It's, just a, it's a very simple scene where they're sitting around the table having a meal, but there's a five-year-old with them. How, how does her presence change not only what happens in the scene, but the way that the that the reader is interacting with those sort of rougher characters? Well, she's fascinated by them. She, um, uh, and one of the reasons I chose this five-year-old girl was that everything on the ship would be new to her, uh, and there would be so many opportunities for her to get in trouble, whereas if I tried to tell a story from one of the sailors' points of view, first of all, I wouldn't have known what the story was, and second of all, this is all routine. This is all old old hat to him. But in, in that particular scene, uh, there is one character who's kind of cautioning the other characters. You know, you need yeah. to mind your man <laughs> You know, don't tell dirty jokes in front of the little girl. And, of course, the girl is just fascinated by the jokes. And the truth about uh, that scene, which is the first scene I had to write with the sailors, is that I absolutely panicked when I realized, oh, my God, I've got this five-year-old girl on a boat full of sailors. Uh, these ships carried a crew of 28 to 32 men. And I've never been around a bunch of sailors in my life. I don't have any idea how they talk. And one of my former students who is from Wisconsin said, oh, just have them tell Lena and Oli jokes. Well, I'd never heard an low Oli and Lena joke in my life. I had to look them up online. Oh, we could do a whole episode on Oli and <laughs> really, Lena jokes. <laughs> but as soon as the first sailor opens his mouth to tell this joke that I looked up online, it was as if I had been listening to all of these sailors with their individual voices talking my whole life. Their voices just became utterly natural yeah. to me. Seafaring has its own language. I mean, if you were to write a uh, a dictionary of the words that appear in this book. There would be a lot of words that are probably unfamiliar to most of us sitting here in this room. Um, how did you discover that language and, and also the technology that goes along with a, with a 1930s Great Lakes Ferry? It's all very foreign to me. How, how did you get into that world? I've, um, 
I wanted to write an essay about what Frankfurt, Michigan had meant to me on my one visit there when I was a child, when I was 12 or 13. So I was at that extremely impressionable age where I thought when I saw this beautiful place, it was a small town, I'd be able to walk wherever I wanted to go, so I'd have a kind of freedom I wouldn't have at home. Uh, I. Um, I wanted to write an essay about that, what a grip it had had on my imagination. And I was on my way to Traverse City to meet my husband where his cousins were having a, a reunion. And I realized that Frankfurt was only 10 minutes out of my way. So I took this little detour and was astonished at how accurately I had remembered the mm -hmm. town. I mean, mm -hmm. memory is such a notoriously faulty tool, but I could pick out the very house where we had stayed, the restaurant where we had eaten. The one thing that was missing was the call of the foghorn because mm -hmm. the ferries had stopped running. and. Nobody seemed to remember when. So I bought a history of the uh, railroad car ferries and was immediately plunged into this world of the tricky currents, the fierce storms, all the ice, because those boats ran year round. And uh, I was so interested. I then read another and kept reading more and more about, about the area. And so I picked up a lot from my reading, but I also wrote a letter to the man, Grant Brown Jr., who had uh, authored the first history that I had read. Uh, a woman at a shop that I went into in Frankfurt gave me his phone number and his address, and I felt funny calling him, so I wrote him an actual letter with a stamp well, and an those. address. <laughs> and uh, he, I gave him my email address, and we struck up an email cor correspondence, and I was able to ask him questions about daily life and procedures that no history would yeah. answer, yeah. and he often didn't know the answer himself, but he was so generous, he would go and look up old-timers who had worked on the ferries, oh, who great. are really getting pretty scarce now, yeah. and he would ask them questions like, okay, if you were going to um, spud, which was one of the methods they used when they got stuck in the ice to try to break it up. How would you get the men down to the ice? Uh, that's not in any history. But the men who had done it remembered that there were these roll-up ladders called Jacob's Ladders that they kept in the lifeboats. And so I found out about a lot of stuff uh, indirectly through the men who had actually worked on the ferries. And this is why you need novelists in the world, because believe it or not, we're historians also. I had a similar experience writing The Lost Book of the Grail, which is set in an English cathedral. There are just certain things about cathedral life that are not in a book anywhere. And I have a friend in England who was a canon at a cathedral, and he would answer all of these you know, tiny little technical questions to him. It was just ordinary, everyday knowledge, but, but it wasn't anything you could find, in, a, in a, as you say, in a history book. And that's such a wonderful book. I love that oh, book. Oh, thank you. Now, while we're on the subject of language, one of the other things about language that fascinates me with relation to writing a historical novel is the mutability, uh, mutability of language, how it means something different in one generation and in another. And this struck me at the beginning of one of your chapters, uh, Fern says that her stepmother was a gay woman, and then, and then the narrator sort of backs off and explains you know, what we meant by that in 1936. Uh, how did, again, how did you discover, we talked about the language of seafaring, but how did you discover the language of, 19, of the 1930s and how it differed from the language of today? 
of it, I think, uh, was instinctual. I'm old enough to remember how my parents talked, mm -hmm. how uh, adults who had lived were alive. I was not alive in the 1930s. I'm old, but not that old. Uh, but I was around in my childhood uh, where people who had uh, come through the 1930s uh, were, and I, I knew how they talked. Of course, I looked up a lot of things in slang dictionaries. I mean, you can Google, you know, slang of the 1930s for whatever word you want and, and so on. So I did a lot of that. I have a, a giant Webster's Dictionary, like the kind they used to have at the public library, that's from 1915, I think. And it's great mm. for sussing out American usage, you know, early in the century. Oh, yes. I, I love moments in writing that break patterns, that defy expectations, um, even that challenge accepted wisdom about how, how a novel ought to be put together. And you have some chapters here and there that are two, three, four sentences long. Um, one of my favorites is chapter 11, which I'm gonna now read chapter 11 to you in its entirety. Children are animals. They want what they want, and all the unwanting in the world can never undo the damage. That's the whole chapter. So my question is first, why did you choose to include these sort of micro chapters? And second, talk to us about the one that I just read. The one that you just read comes out of her guilt for what happens on, on this ship. There are a lot of things that she has no responsibility for. They go through a horrible storm and so on. But there is a tragedy on the ship that she is in many ways responsible for uh, or feels responsible for. And so uh, she's there's this young deckhand that you met briefly in the passage I read named Al. He's on his first joy voyage. He's dropped out of school. He's 14 years old, and his father has made him go to work on the ferries because it's the depression, and that's the only work there is around. What he really wants to do is to play the piano. Uh, and he... Uh, He's someone who is, a, her father assigns him because he's the new boy and he's really just kind of an errand boy on his way to becoming a, a deckhand. He assigns this kid, Alv, to look out for his daughter. And she's a really bossy little girl. <laughs> um, she's, she's really adventurous, but she's also really bossy. And although she doesn't realize it at the time, she's a snob. Uh, and that's something that she comes to understand uh, much later. She lives in uh, what you would call the good side of the harbor, uh, and he lives on the bad side of the harbor. It's like the good side of the tracks and the bad side of, of the tracks. Uh, he's he's an, an ordinary seaman. Officers live in the nicer town on the north side of the, the harbor. And so she's very much aware of that and aware of the fact that she's bossing him around and she's making him do things that are going to get him into trouble, even long before the, the tragedy. Uh, and so it just seemed like a bald statement mm -hmm. was the best way for her to express that without giving away what was going to happen. Yeah. It's, it's just very effective if, as a writer if you want a reader to really pay attention to one or two or three sentences, put them on the page all by themselves with their very own yeah. chapter number. And you know, you just you automatically sort of read it two or three times mm -hmm. over because it just the way it looks on the page 
says, I, this is important, this, this bit is important. We talked about memory a little bit a while ago, but and, and you mentioned Alv, and one of the things I found fascinating about her looking back on Alv is she has this very clear memory of Alv and the other kids from, as you say, the other side of the harbor coming to school. And then she discovers that they, they didn't come to the same school, they, they went to a different one. And she says, it's not what I've forgotten that disturbs me, rather what I remember. Why would I remember something so false? Talk to us about the idea of, of false memory and how that, the impact that that has on the adult fern. Oh, uh, well, she, she is reliving this trip. At the same time, she has to question some things that, that she remembers, especially when she discovers, when she visits the museum, that um, she has imagined the kids in Frankfurt, the nice town, snubbing the kids from Alberta at school, when in fact Alberta had its own school. And to tell you the truth, Writing that chapter was one of the saving yourself chapters mm. because I didn't know there had been a school in Alberta uh -huh. when I wrote the first chapter where she's imagining them snubbing the, the kids in uh, Alberta. And then on a subsequent trip, because I made maybe 10 trips up there researching this novel, on a subsequent trip I find this picture of the Alberta school and go, oh, you know, darn, I got to sack that <laughs> chapter. And I really didn't want to, so I decided to have her remember this. And and I felt there was a justification for it, that guilt for the snobbery yeah, yeah. that she feels that causes her to misremember. I thought it was fascinating, and I thought it sort of, it also puts the reader in this very interesting position of, okay, everything I'm reading is her memory, and now she's just told me her memories are completely unreliable. So now what do I believe and what don't I believe? Which is, which as a reader is an interesting spot to be in because then you have to participate in the experience of selecting what you think is genuinely true and what you think maybe was invented by a five-year-old or by an 85-year-old. Um, again, on the subject of memory, when she's at school, she talks about the mnemonic for remembering the names of the Great Lakes is Holmes, H-O-M-E-S. And I love that because it feels to me that like part of what this novel is about is the power of home, however, however we define that. What do you see as the connection between who we are and the fairly random chance location of, of where we happen to be born? I think it has an enormous effect on, on us. It, ne it never leaves you. It, I will never get over having grown up in the industrial Calumet region. Um, I, um, the next town over from mine was Gary, Indiana, which a lot of people have heard of. Because uh, well, we all seen the music yes, man. But, right. You know. <laughs> and Hammond, Indiana, and Gary, Indiana were to Chicago, which they were immediately adjacent to. I mean, it was 25 miles from my front door to the Chicago Loop. Mm -hmm. uh, but they were to Chicago as Newark, New Jersey is, is to New York, a whole different world. Yeah. And I was particularly aware of that because my, my mother grew up in Chicago. We moved when I was five years old because of the second wave of the Great Migration. Uh, it was a, a move that was racially motivated. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I felt like an exile. Uh, and in a way, being from the Midwest, even though I've lived my 
virtually my entire adult life in the South, I've never felt completely like a Southerner mm -hmm. either, mm -hmm. but I don't entirely identify with being from, from the Midwest, and so I feel in some ways like a person without a country. Uh, and, uh, and that is because of where I grew up and my great desire to escape it. In her case, uh, place is very meaningful because she didn't want to escape right, it. She right. wanted to keep it, and she was exiled from it. Mm -hmm. There's a passage, again, on the subject of the school teacher in chapter 13 that actually reminded me, if any of you came and saw Dave Pilkey at the festival, it sounded a lot like what Dave said about his second grade teacher. Fern says of her teacher, uh, my problem, she told me, was that I had an overactive imagination. On my report card, she wrote that I told lies. As a teacher, how you've, you've been a teacher for many years, how do you think teachers ought to encourage rather than subdue the overactive imagination? I think that's a great question. Uh, I certainly went to school at a time when the um, operating principle was sub subduing. I mean, we had no such thing when I was in high school, for example, as creative writing. Um, the arts were considered kind of frivolous. Uh, things were very much by the book. Uh, it was a much more authoritarian time. Mm -hmm. uh, now I think uh, educators are doing much more to encourage imagination. And uh, we have all kinds of arts programs in the schools. Uh, some of them are within the schools themselves. Others are visiting programs that come in. And so I think a lot of that has to do with when the book is set mm -hmm. and the very you know, rigid, authoritarian, and scientific uh, stance this teacher is taking as she tells the story of Holmes, the, uh, the right. geological <laughs> formation of the Great Lakes. And the girl's experience is almost the sailor's experience of the Great Lakes because she's been across with her father on this on this journey. You described Fern a few minutes ago as being bossy, which I think is, is fair. Um, it seems to me she becomes more and more independent as this journey across the lake progresses. Do you see the journey as almost a microcosm of a Bildungsroman? I think in many ways it is because this journey will change her life. Yeah. Uh, and so she's, um, if, if you can say that uh, a child is innocent, Oh, that a five-year-old girl is innocent as she gets on this ship. She will not get off it, uh, even with an illusion of innocence. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it, uh, it is very much uh, a building ceremony, I think. Another thing I noticed, and you sort of, we sort of heard this when, on the passage that you read about the ghost ship, is to me there's this constant dual feeling in this novel of presence and absence. We see it sometimes in little details, like there's a cat who's there, and then the cat is hiding. And then we also see it in, you know, we're not really sure if, if mom is alive back home or if she's not alive. She's, she's with them, but she's not with them. Um, talk about how you use those, those two sort of contradictory ideas together in the same story. Oh, that's an interesting question. I'm, um, 
I've heard a couple of people uh, complain about things that uh, she couldn't possibly know, like exactly when did the mother die mm -hmm. uh, and uh, some, some other things. And the, the answer is that uh, she doesn't know. Communications were very poor in those days. They have a ship-to-shore radio that's uh, so full of static, it's almost of no use. There's no such thing as, as radar. And so this, there's this tremendous tension between uh, what she feels in some ways accountable for and what she really doesn't know. Mm -hmm. uh, for her, uh, things happen back home uh, and she's not thinking about them because she's thinking about this great adventure that she's having on, on this ship and that of course contributes to her, her guilt. So I, w I wanted to play with that tension between with uh, the, between the things that uh, she doesn't know and yet still feels responsible for. I think one of the reasons some of us write historical novels is because she experiences something on that boat that it's almost impossible to experience in 2018, and that is isolation. That is yes. being, being, as you said, cut off from, from the rest of society. That You have to really go out of your way to make that happen in this day and age. Absolutely. Uh, let's talk for a minute about the ways in which you manipulate time. Part of the narrative, I would say, is, is nonlinear. We're going, sometimes we're not quite sure if it's the five-year-old talking to us or the 85-year-old, and then sometimes we have some scenes that are in between. It actually reminds me, ha having the retrospective point of view reminds me a little bit of that wonderful opening sentence of 100 Years of Solitude, where you have sort of three different time periods packed into one sentence. Um, how, how did you manipulate um, time in, in the story? I, I wanted as much as I could to tell the journey from the point of view of the five-year-old, although every now and then a little bit of the retrospective voice mm -hmm. uh, slips in. And I sort of tried to account for it. I was kind of covering my tracks uh, <laughs> in the chapter in which she says that um, she's so mixed up now she um, she can't separate the the past from from the present, uh, but the the retrospective voice was very much needed in uh, the other chapters when she's looking back, and so I tried to keep the two voices as separate as I could, but they had to blend and. It, you know, I was really covering my tracks when I wrote that line about how um, she can't tell you now what which was which. Right, right. I, at the beginning, the first time I wrote that question, I think I wrote, um, "You you have a five-year-old narrator," because at the beginning of the book, it, it it's a little you're a little ways in before you realize that this is a retrospective narration, and I like that. I like being able to sort of discover these these layers as I move through the narration rather than being told everything in the, in the first paragraph. Um, there are places where you stop the story and paint these amazing pictures of Frankfurt, of the ice on the lake, of these, these, these moments in time and these places in geography that most of us have never experienced. And I think that works towards the art of pacing. So tell us how you approached uh, pacing. When did you decide 
it's it's time to pause the story and and slow things down. When did you think now we need to speed things up and move them along? Well, I have to be honest here. Um, I did an awful lot of cutting of the chapters that are less active. Mm-hmm. The, the chapters that are more uh, about the place, uh, more about the the history. Uh, one thing that happens when you research a world that you really don't know anything about, and I, I knew nothing about these car fairies until I just happened to read this, this history, uh, and then got really interested in it and just couldn't get enough of it and read more and more and more, uh, is that um, everything you learn is so interesting to you, you want to put it in yes, your book, and yes. your book gets weighed down <laughs> by this, and you're fascinated by it, and the reader is meantime, you know, flipping pages. When are we going to get back to the action? So a lot of that balance came in revision. Yeah. Uh, a whole lot of cutting of the more inert material, the more descriptive material, took place in revision um, because it was weighing the book down. I had a very similar experience with The Bookman's Tale, which when I wrote it, I, I didn't have a publisher, I didn't know if it'd ever be mm. published, and so I was showing off all the things that I knew about old books, and, and when, the, when the book sold, they were like, well, you know, not all the things that you know about old books have to do with the story that you're telling. Right. So, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but I hope they'll give us all something to think about and give our listeners some special insight into you and your writing. Are you ready? Yes. What word do you love to work into your writing? I will sound like a sourpuss, but the word is sour. Oh, yeah, sourpuss <laughs> is a great word, too, i got to say. <laughs> what word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Soul. Not as in soul music, but as in speaking from the soul. I, I think that's a result of uh, having taught uh, so many beginning writers who are burying their souls and talking about them on the very first page before you even know their names. Yeah, I think, I think someone like yourself who has taught writing at the college level will, will have a different insight into these questions probably than someone who just reads published novels. <laughs> Where is your favorite place to write? Wild Acres. Uh, I don't know if you know where that is. It's a, a retreat center that's off the Blue Ridge Parkway near Little Switzerland in McDowell County. Where could you never write? I can't write on a plane, a train, or anything. I, I don't write by hand. It doesn't look right to me. I get writer's cramp. Uh, I learned to write. I'm old enough that I learned to write on a typewriter and then, you know, just switch to com- computer. So anywhere where I can't use a machine of some kind <laughs> is where I can't write. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? I took a grammar course in college where we still diagrammed sentences uh, that was taught by Bob Michener, who was James Michener's uh-huh. brother. And grammar is so ingrained in me that I never think about it when I'm writing. But the thing that gives me the most trouble is those sentences which technically call for a singular verb, although it feels 
more natural to write right. a plural verb and vice versa. And I go back and forth on those. <laughs> what was the first book you remember reading? The first book I remember having read to me was probably the pokey little puppy. <laughs> uh, the first book I probably read for myself was one of those insipid Dick and Jane readers. Yeah. What are you reading now? I just finished one of Hilary Mantel's earlier books, uh, The um, Vacant Possessions. What book would you like to have written? It would be not the right moment to say Lolita. So I'll say A Hundred Years of Solitude. Okay. <laughs> what sort of book would you like to write but probably never will? A book, a Russian novel maybe, a mm. book set in a country that I have visited but don't well know well enough to write as if I'm from there. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a new community gathering place and independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Lee Zacharias, whose new book, Across the Great Lake, is available wherever books are sold. And of course, you can get signed copies right here at Bookmarks. Lee, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. During the busy fall publishing season, Inside the Writer's Studio will post new episodes on the 10th, 20th, and 30th of every month. On our next show, I'll be talking with middle school writer Alan Gratz about his new novel, Grenade. Until then, thanks for listening. And may you read with wonder and write with passion.